Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sorry about the noise. My neighbor's sanding his deck. My motto, don't work on your deck. Play on it. Life's good with a Trex deck. Low maintenance with a 25-year residential warranty. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. It's made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, well, we're lucky enough to be joined by a five-time Olympian, three-time world champion, and the greatest surfcraft competitor in the history of Australian surf lifesaving. Kayaker Clint Robinson has won the complete set of Olympic medals dating back to Barcelona 92, and with a record 36 national titles, he was a headline act in the legendary Uncle Toby's Super Series, of course, the professional Ironman circuit of the 80s and 90s. Clint's a member of the of Australia, and he sits very comfortably in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. Clint, welcome, and thanks for joining us. No worries, mate. How are you going? Uh, we're well here. Can I just say, just touching on it there, I bloody love the Uncle Toby Super Series. I grew up on that as a kid, whether it be uh, on, on Channel 10 or in person, which in my case was for me down at Portsea on the morning to Peninsula. It was an institution, that series, you know, the, the pinnacle of surf lifesaving. Yeah, it was. It was a very good time for the sport. Um, naturally, the Nutrigrain series that morphed into being a higher-profile Uncle Toby's Ironman series when Uncle Toby's and Grant Kenny um, took it to another level. Um, it was certainly a spectacle. It was rating when it was on on those particular weekends very competitively with NRL at the time. So it was a it was a big Aussie sport, and a lot of people came live and or watched it on their TV. So yeah, it was a memorable one for a lot of people. Do you ever get nostalgic about that series when it flashes up in any way, shape, or form? Um, you know, it was really strange. You know how on this social media platform <laughs> there'll be memories that'll pop up? Yeah. Um, one of the memories that was shared from Guy Leach the other day, who was naturally a very prominent profile in that time, uh, he shared the Waikiki race that we did in Hawaii. And... Uh, it was quite an interesting one because it brought back a lot of memories of what that was like. And we actually, like Waikiki Beach is quite popular at the best of times. But when we were over there um, was, I think, around that September timeframe. And the act, the only way we could run along the beaches was the people just made like these these gaps and made big tunnels through the, the, the actual sand. And they were the run legs that we were actually doing, held back with a little bit of bunting and stuff. So it was a really unique time. And there was just, yeah, I don't know, six or 8,000 people on Waikiki Beach watching it that day when we went over there to do our event. So it really, um, yeah, it really captivated a lot of people. And even the Americans got right into it. It did. It did. And it allowed a lot of you guys to make a professional living out of the, the sport too, which was amazing. So I want to come back to that later because it was a fantastic era. Now, for someone who went on to do what they did, Clint, we're often, well, we're often products of our environment, aren't we? So so where was home for you as a kid? Uh, on what coast, I should probably frame the question. Yeah, so I was born in Brisbane, 
but from quite a young age, my parents were coming to the Sunshine Coast, so they were naturally coming up here um, from sort of their early 20s. And uh, naturally, uh, my parents decided to have kids quite young, um, like a lot of people did back in those days. And I sort of came along when they were very early 20s. So I started to get pulled up to the Sunshine Coast on the weekends. And then not too long after that, we moved up here when I was quite a young child. So um, I've lived here most of my life, apart from the three or four months that I'd spend in Europe every year for about 24 years with my career. And what did your mum and dad do? Would you, is it right that your old man Ron was pretty handy on the surf ski clean? Yeah, so he was a boat rower initially. He came out of the football back um, football sort of upbringing and then went into boat rowing um, with a lot of sort of mates that he grew up with in football. Um, he did quite well in that, but found that as his family came along at a fairly young age, he needed to get into more of an individual sport because the commitment with the rowing group was difficult. So he got into uh, ski paddling at the time and just a little bit of kayaking. But dad did very well. He started ski paddling very late and and, uh, you know, from 24, 25 year old back in those days to start a sport as difficult as paddling is, is a pretty rare thing to do. And he ended up um, making four Australian finals and, you know, finishing in the top six a couple of times. So he was quite a handy athlete. My mum was a very, very good netballer. Um, so <clears throat> my dad's family actually had a lot of, you know, Australian netball captain was his sister. His mum was Australian bowls champion. Um, he was, you know, naturally more of a, a water sport athlete. So my both my parents had a, uh, my mum Mum's dad was Queensland middleweight boxing champion in the war years. So I had a fair bit of sort of sporting talent in both sides of the family. And uh, I was just a water baby, mate. I just loved yeah. being out there and being in the water. So even though yours was a childhood spent, as you say, in and around the water, wasn't it initially in terms of the sporting pursuits all about league? Wasn't it rugby league for you initially? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. So um, it was an interesting time. When you're 12 or 13 year old, you don't suspect that you've got to make a choice for your career. <laughs> but I was in the Queensland lifesaving team and the Queensland rugby league team at the same time. And naturally, those sports were literally just keeping me like a young athlete going like 11 months of the year at a pretty high level. So my parents said to me, you're going to have to make a choice. Do you want to go to the Olympic Games or do you want to try and play rugby league and state of origin and play for your country? And I just said, well, to me, the Olympic Games is the, you know, the pinnacle of sport. You don't need to have a zillion dollars to do it. And uh, the risk of getting injured is so high in like rugby league that um, you may be a good player, but may not make it like I'm sure many have. But um I chose to go down that Olympic route from that time just after I watched the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games. They asked me just after that Olympics was on. And when I watched the Australian athletes walk out into the um, the opening ceremony, I thought, you know, that to me is the pinnacle of being an athlete in this world. You're a very, very physical athlete to make that level of sport. And I think it's the true test of an individual's ability. So that's what I wanted to chase. And it's been a long, hard road, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to document that as best we can. I guess we're all products of our environment. This is an example of, you know, seeing is believing too, isn't it? If you see it, you can be it. Yes, yes, that's right. And my parents, we we had very little money when I was a young kid. Um, you know, we, we basically did it from more of a country area and I had to be good enough to make it. And naturally, when you, you do stay consistent at the top of your age groups, when you're younger, people do notice you. And I got invited to the AIS by a gentleman called Barry Kelly, um, who was the he was an Olympic medalist himself. He was the head coach of the AIS and the Australian team at the time. And uh, he invited me down to the Institute, which was then on the Gold Coast, to uh, have a 
little crack and see how I stepped up against some of the open guys that were in national teams. And yeah, mate, the, the rest is history. We, we progressed along as we went. So just on that, I guess there's moments of discovery along the way, isn't there? I mean, your sport is obviously one that requires enormous powers of endurance and strength. Was there a moment, a light bulb moment almost, Clint, where you thought, geez, I've got a decent VO2 engine here. I've got a natural gift and now it's up to me to work with it. Yeah, it's, it's strange. I, I was only just talking to my son about that because my son at the moment is a rep soccer player. He's like 12, 13 year old. Nearly. And uh, he said to me, Dad, how did you know that you wanted to be an athlete? So it's funny how these little realisations happen for you and then your kids you know when they sort of learn more about you and what you did and you're encouraging them to be involved in their own activities and I said mate there was it's really strange because we've just been down in Bribe recently and buried my dad's mum who was 101 and uh, as we were driving across the bridge to go to her funeral that day he asked me that question this was only in the last couple of months and uh, I said it's really strange you asked that buddy because on the left side of this bridge, there was a race from one side of the river in Bribey across around a buoy that was really close to the beach on the other side and then back. And when I was a 15-year-old kid, um, I did this race and I raced against the guy that was the Australian junior singles champion who was an under 18 at the time. And uh, he was also racing in open competition and making finals at state level. And so, you know, dad said to me, you know, look, you have, you've only paddled with me for a couple of years enjoying it. Just, you know, get out there and see if you can hang on to him and see how it goes. And that day, I had a real ding dong battle with this fella and uh, it was about a K and a half across and back. And then on the way back, him and I came up, I came up side by side with him and we had this ding dong race all the way to the finish. And it wasn't so much that I just ended up beating and that was the significant thing. It was that my dad saw something that day because he'd been a ski paddler and he said, not many people could do that, what you just did then, you know, with hardly any experience at all in the sport. You know, this kid's the junior Australian champion. He's three years older than you. Um, you know, you should seriously have a little think about what you want to do if you want to paddle because you're going to have to get into it soon. And that was, that was really the defining day. That's what that's what started it, mate. So, um, wow. Yeah, my dad was a paddler. I loved it. I did it with him from a young age, just for fun. And then, yeah, that that day, I sort of woke up and I thought to myself, "Geez, like if he's winning national stuff, I think I can do this, and I love it." You know, so let's go. Let's get on the train and shut the door, and away we go. Geez, oh, you're listening to this as your journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. So the fire is lit inside Clint Robinson. His love for surf lifesaving as you're about to hear, is about to be franked by some head-turning results. That's up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to five-time Olympian Clint Robinson. So, Clint, it's the 1987 National Surf Lifesaving Championships. I think it was in Scarborough Beach, WA. You're there as a 15-year-old. Now, there was something called the Cadet Malibu Board Race on the program, wasn't there, back in the day? Yes, that's right. So, the Malibu Board is a board that's used in the Ironman racing and Iron Lady racing. Um, back in those days, um, they were a little different than what they are today, but still all along the same dimensions. And yeah, I started as in surf lifesaving as a young nipper kid, like a lot of kids around the country do get into the sport. And then I started to sort of morph more towards craft. So board paddling, ski paddling, those types of things 
sort of tickled my fancy far more than sticking my head down in a pool and looking at a black line for, you know, eight to 10 hours a week. So I did swim. I did three or four swim sessions a week, but the board paddling was what I was allowed to do because you don't do ski paddling until you get to 15 years and older um, to race. So effectively, that was the thing that I really drew me into competition. And uh, yeah, that, that board race in Perth was an absolute ding dong. That was my first ever Australian title that I won. It was a big moment. And we were speaking about your, your father before, and I guess the perspective that he was able to give you as you're coming through. Now, the role that he played in teaching you the ropes, I mean, you once said, I think, that winning starts in the head. So the power of the mind, I think he often had said to you as well that you can't allow others to think they're better than you. Was this something that you had a, a grasp of even now as a, as a 15, 16-year-old? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I sit back and I watch sport now, and naturally my young fella likes watching NRL and we like watch Formula One and, you know, you see the different mind games and I talk to him about different athletes and the way that they operate and how they're, like, win it or bin it. Like, he, he watches Formula One with me and how Max Verstappen would prefer to crash than lose. And, yeah. And you got other people that are a little bit more articulate, like Lewis, who aren't willing to put it on the line, like Schumacher and all that. So I teach him that mindset and what those type of people are. You know, they they do have big consequences. But I also try and help him understand that the current, like, footballer, so they'll go out there and try and bash the heck out of each other. Um, but after the game, they all hug each other, you know, and they're, how you going, mate? And they stand next to each other and, you know, touch each other and talk and whatever. Where back in the 80s and the early 90s, when I grew up watching football and how I was taught to play, like you developed quite a resentment to those other people, you know, like you growing up in Melbourne would have seen the resentment, what the full forwards and that were doing when the ball wasn't near them in AFL, they'd be punching each other's lights out, you know, when the ball wasn't around them. So Sports changed a lot, and I think the general demeanour of the way that kids are introduced to sport today is a lot like that. Like, everyone gets a medal just for participating, and yeah. people come along and have fun. And when I was brought up in sport, yes, it was enjoyable, but the sacrifice to be great was very high. And the resentment and the, the rivalry, and I wouldn't say it was hatred, but certainly not wanting to be friends with your main opposition was very much encouraged. You know, that was the way that you went about your business. And Clint, is that innate, that thirst for the contest, uh, contest the thirst for competition, that ruthlessness? I mean, I don't know if you can teach that. I mean, you either have it or you don't have it. And am I right to assume you were more Max Verstappen than Lewis Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Look, um, I was taught by, as I said, guys like Barry Kelly, um, my father, and some other instrumental figures that were in sport at the time where um, don't even concern yourself with going to talk to them or be friends with them, respect them, shake their hand, acknowledge them if you walk past, things like that. But, you know, don't even don't even entertain a friendship because these people, you need to visualise every day that they are right next to you trying to beat you. And in all your pain and all your anguish and all your anxiety and all the fatigue and the killer instinct that you've got to build building that sort of that rivalry against them and wanting to hurt them you know that that's what we were taught to think and I think that there was a lot of good in that you know there's a lot of good in that but I have great relationships with all those guys that I competed against back in those days today well, but I didn't talk to any of them when I raced them. we're going to get to the one in a moment but before we do so at just 16 that that first national title look at that Malibu board race leads to an invitation Incredibly, at that age, to join the Australian Olympic kayak squad in 88, which I can imagine uh, was only imagine was a massive whirlwind at the time. And then so in your teens, when perhaps others, your friends, your mates are all discovering alcohol and parties and whatever, 
Was that a path for you that was easy to deviate away from or was it a temptation at that time? Um, you know, this is the part that I think you referred to a little earlier, that it's a little bit of a natural instinct. I, I believe part of my gifts that I was given to be an athlete was the ability to want to race. I loved to put myself against somebody on the same start line with a fair playing field. And sometimes I know some of the athletes I raced were on drugs and it wasn't a player a fair playing field, but that would give me more motivation to beat them. Um, I, I just think that was one of my gifts. I was genuinely interested in just seeing who I really was. Yeah, I wanted to mark up and be judged, you know, because I wanted them to know if you do beat me, you're going to have to nearly kill yourself to do it because I'm willing to do that myself, you know. And that's that still is with me today. If I go and race and I've done the training for something and I seriously want to have a go at doing well at something, I can carry that same I'm a lot more articulate now because yeah. you know how to work with people and in an environment and be friendly and all that. But deep down, what's going in on inside in the back of my head are those very same things. I just know how to play that game, you know? And that's such a powerful weapon to have and that no one can take away from you. It's amazing. So before we get to the Olympics and where you made your name, obviously, in the K1-1000 in Barcelona, can we, can we talk about 1990? So you're, you're 18 years of age. You're still a junior. But you race the K2 at the Senior World Championships in Poland, Lake Malta. You get knocked out though, don't you? And you end up watching the finals from from a nearby a nearby hill. Can you take us through the process of what happened firstly in the in the K two? Yeah, so every second year in that era was the Junior World Championships. So when I went to the Junior World Championships in eighty nine, um, I was a first year junior, right. meaning I was only sixteen, racing under eighteen year olds. So when I had my main year as a junior, there was no junior world championship, so I didn't get to test myself in my junior prime. So the only thing I could do was to go and to the senior trials and try and beat all our seniors here to make the senior team. I didn't beat them all. There was a guy that beat me called Martin Hunter, who's a good buddy of mine from any he coaches over in Sweden now. But the fellow that had been our silver medalist at the 1988 Olympics, Greg Barton, uh, sorry, Grant Davies, I'm sorry. Grant Davies and I were basically paired equal second in Australia. So we had to fight off for the second seat in the men's double. So we were taken overseas and Grant was naturally the silver medalist from 88 a couple of years earlier. So we were taken overseas and the head coach, Barry Kelly, he put us in two different doubles with different partners and then swapped us. And we had to do races and time trials against each other. And that was sort of like the beginning of my international senior career. So I got picked as the person to paddle in the double with one of our other top K1 guys. And Grant got put off into a non-Olympic event. And that basically ended his career from being that silver medalist in 88. That basically knocked him out of the senior team in a single or a double spot. So he then basically retired and gave up the sport. And that's where my rise really started. So I went to Worlds. And I paddled in the double with this fellow and we were, we were in a qualifying position. We we're in the top three in the semi-final. And the guys that had been the Olympic champions in 88 from New Zealand, the guy called Ian Ferguson and Paul McDonald, they rode the wash of the leading crew in that race and sprinted past us in the last 12 metres of that 1,000 metre race and knocked myself and the doubles partner out of the final. So while that hurt, the weird thing in hindsight that you never saw coming was I got to stand up on these big hills that were on either side of the course and watch the men's single and the men's double final. Mm. So the singles final on that day was won by a gentleman called Knut Holman, who's a big six foot eight Norwegian, one of the most incredibly physically looking athletes you've ever seen in your life, incredibly ripped, very, very humble, just a real gentleman and an incredible athlete. And he went and won the race in the fastest time ever paddled in the world. And he won by like four lengths, which is a little unheard 
third of it in the world final. And so I stood there on the bank that day and it wasn't as if I thought I could beat him because I knew the Olympics was the next year and I hadn't even won in Australia yet. I was like the second or third best. And I thought to myself, I, I want to be that good. I'd love to be that good, but I still looked at him like he was a bit of a superhero and everyone did he was so far in front he was huge and he got off the water and he had this massive presence you mm. know and uh anyway i that was where the real bug for the olympic games really set in with me that was when i thought to myself i am going to make sure i go to multiple games and represent my country and so is it true though that you you thought bugger the k2 i mean i don't want to be relying on someone else yeah. in there i want to do this my own if, I, if i'm going to go down it's going to be on my terms yeah yeah and look, when i paddled the k2 yes i was still only a junior but i was better than the guy that i was paddling with <laughs> right. and i thought i don't want to get in a boat with someone slower than me anymore. yeah like, so, I'm going to do it on my own or I'm going to do it with someone quicker and that's it. So the next year yeah. you're back at Worlds, and this time I think it's in Paris, and you're in the K1 and you're against Holman, who you'd watched from the banks the year earlier. So how far behind did you finish and how disheartening was that result? Yeah, he, he gave my butt a good smack. <laughs> um, there's no doubt about that. So I um, just beat Martin Hunter at trials, who was a world gold medalist in the 500-metre distance, and I beat him at trials in the 1,000-metre distance so where he got third at the Worlds the year before. So I thought, well, I should be fairly competitive. But when I went in the Worlds race as a first-year senior in Paris, Holman was in the lane next to me. And I just honestly wasn't ready for his second quarter of the race. It was like you went out and played an AFL game. He was basically, you, you know, you're a goal behind going into the first quarter break. And then going into the halftime break, you were eight goals behind. Yeah. That's basically what he did to me. Yeah. And uh, I was back on his third wash, which is around about 22 metres behind it. And I just thought to myself, geez, what the hell happened there, you know? And then I ended up finishing sixth or something like that in the world final. And I came home and uh, I sat down with mum and dad once I got back to Australia and we got talking about it one night. And they said, you know, what do you think about him as an athlete? And I just said, oh, look, I think he's unbeatable. It's, it's like he's superhuman. I mean, I was only still 19 at the time. Um, and uh, I just said, oh, I, I can't see anybody beating him for ages. And, you know, my father just went real quiet and didn't say much because that was never the mentality that we went about anything at. And um, anyway, he said, okay, well, you've got a couple of weeks off. So, you know, enjoy yourself for a couple of weeks and let's see, see how we go after that. We'll have a chat. So anyway, the two weeks was up and uh, I got up to um, go and get dad to do the first morning back at training. And I went and knocked on his door because my father would never, ever come and get me my whole career. If you don't wake up yourself, you don't go. That's really? That's the rule. And, and uh, so I went in and knocked on his door and, you know, it was still dark and all this stuff. And he said, yeah, what's up? And I said, oh, well, well, let, let's go. And he said, no, nah, don't worry about it. I said, what do, you, what do you mean? He goes, mate, no one beats a superhero. I said, what? And he said, yeah, no one beats a superhero unless he's, you think he's got two arms and two legs and a head on his shoulders and he's completely possible to knock off. Um, stay in bed, it's too goddamn hard. And uh, he said, go on, go back to bed. So anyway, I went back in my room. I sat on the end of my bed and I thought, through this, you know, this is this is my dream and I want this. And so I went back and knocked on his door again and he said, um, I'm only getting up if you think you can win. Otherwise, don't bother. And I said, I'll win. And he said, okay, let's go. And then, yeah, 11 months later, I won the Olympic gold medal. He's unbelievable. And it, it has been recounted. I don't know if it was words to this effect. Did he say to you, you have to want it more and you've got to make him uncomfortable, squash every bit of life out of him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In, in every fight, in every stroke, in every race, make him feel incredibly uncomfortable, make him look for you. It's that same theory, you know, what they do on AFL fields. I mean, I've worked for Hawthorne 
working with their young draft picks with Alistair Clarkson and his defence and attack teams and all this. And we got taught when I was in the Queensland Rugby League, if you hit a person hard enough, they can't not look for you because they don't want to be hit that hard again. It worries them. It's fear, you know? It drives fear into their, the bracket the back of their brain. And that's what it's like when you're competing at a very intense, exhaustive level. If a person does everything they can to unload you and get rid of you and you, you don't go and you put pressure on them and then you beat them, they can't help but start looking for you and once their attention is on you and not always on themselves, then all of a sudden they're becoming slightly less in their ability. So it's that sort of stuff that's in like minuscule amounts of, of distance, millimetres that you're trying to take away from their best by putting yourself in their head. And uh, that stuff just doesn't happen because of one race. You've got to hurt yourself a lot to train to get to that level. And then you've got to race at that level and be so goddamn exhausted, but still fight and when that day comes, when it all matters and everyone in the world's watching it, then you truly get judged for who you are. You know, it's a it's a good day that day. You're with This Is Your Journey. It's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. So next, the 1992 Barcelona Olympics and the race that forever changed Clint Robinson's life is after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with Olympic kayaker, surf life-saving great, and one of Australia's most incredible athletes, Clint Robinson. So, Clint, the K1 final at the Barca Olympics. So what are your memories of the event itself? So years and years have gone into this moment, and at the 750-metre mark, you're level third, half a metre behind the man you desperately want to beat, the man from Oslo, Knut Holman. Yeah. Yeah, look, it, it, was, a, it was a cracker. So in lane nine was Greg Barton, who was the current Olympic champion. And he currently designs all the ocean skis that I paddle. And I've helped Greg design a lot of these skis. So we, we get along very well. Um, in lane eight, next to Greg, was the junior world champion from two years before, a guy called Marion Popescu. Um, he was a fantastic young talent. And then I was in lane seven and Holman was in lane five, who was the current two times world champion. So I was the only one out of the four of us that was in that last 200 meter fight that hadn't had a world or Olympic title next to my name. Um, but what happened? The final always is just an example of what you created before. And the semi final, when I raced home and him and I were at, against each other in the semi final, I went out in the semi final and after beating Greg Barton in the last regatta a month earlier by quite a long margin, and he was the current Olympic champion. So all of a sudden, my name was starting to get thrown around as a real dark horse. And then when the semi final came up, I went and paddled with Holman and I really stuck with him because I remember what he did to me at Paris, the Worlds the year before, where he decimated me in the second 250. So I thought, I'm going to go and stay with him in the first 250 and then I'm going to hurt myself beyond belief, try and get to the 500 metre mark within one metre of our noses in line. And then what I let him do is after that, I let him jump me at the 500 because he really would make moves at the 500 as well. So I let him jump me by about two thirds of a boat length there. And then after that, I basically fell away a little bit in the last 200 metres purposely to let him think that I had nowhere near the back 500 that he had. But I knew from our training that was the strongest part of my race. I was fitter than any of them. I knew that. And so I was, I was going to play, I played a mind game 
in that particular semi-final for what was to come. And the final worked out exactly as we planned it to be from how we trained it. So yeah, the mind game had started six weeks earlier with Greg Barton, who was the, the other guy that was hot favourite to win it. And of course, all three of us ended up standing on the dice, Greg, myself and Canute. But the, the, I sort of got to 500 metre mark and then I made my push in the final and stayed within a third of a length. And dad said to me, if you stay within half a length with him, with a quarter of the race to go, with 250 metres to go, you will win. So, and that was the last thing my dad said as I saw dad when I walked in the gate in the morning because my dad wasn't a coach on the team. He was just a spectator. So he saw me at the front gate. And so I was thinking about that the whole morning and I went through my warm-up thinking about it and I was, I was ready for it. But then when I got to about 650 metres, just between the halfway and the three-quarter distance, I went through a really bad hyperventilation period where I couldn't get enough oxygen in for the amount of energy that I was pushing out. So I started to short breath a little bit. And it's funny, but no one can teach you these things, mate. This is just part of who you are and the training that you've done to become who you are. Those breathing patterns normalize with a few bits of concentration on what you do when you've done that in training on many, many occasions. And I pulled myself back together just before my 300 from the finish line. So at 700 metres, just after I hyperventilated, I started my push for home and every 100, I stepped it up. And usually every 100, the other athletes that I was against would either maintain or drop off. That's why I went from like equal third, fourth. Um, and then I went definitely into third, up into second. And then of course, with about 105 metres to go, I think I levelled with Nut and my kick at the end, he didn't have another kick and I knew that. So I had to make sure that I did that. But, you know, when you're in a balanced sport that's so tippy, kayaks are incredibly tippy. They're very, very easy to fall in. And uh, you're looking forward towards the end of the course. The two things I remember in that last 100 was I completely lost focus. All my peripheral vision shut down yeah. because I was getting into low oxygen and I could see really weirdly the Australian flag, all the country's flags are at the end of the course. And the Australian flag was dead in line with lane seven and it was blowing. So I could see the flag and I wasn't sure whether it was the stars through oxygen deprivation that I had shooting forward out of my eyes or the stars that felt like they were in the flag coming back at me. But it was really, really a quite quirky last 15 seconds. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that. That was quite uncomfortable. Together they come. It's Barton and Holman. Barton in the white kayak closest to you. Far side, Holman for Norway. In the green and gold for Australia, Robinson coming on strong. Popescu still in contention. The crowd roaring them on. The Americans looking for their first medal of the regatta. Coming through. And it's Robinson of Australia and Barton. Those two now as we come to the line. And it's Robinson who's just about ahead. And Australia take gold from Norway. And Barton gets the bronze ahead of Popescu. Australia won. Two. This is unofficial. Then the USA. And then Romania. Italy, as you can see there, in fifth place. Then, uh, in sixth place, Portugal. I, was, uh, I reckon he went so deep. It was spine-tingling to watch. And you, you went so deep that the urine sample became a bit of a problem, didn't it, famously, due to the dehydration. Now, there's nothing unusual in that. We see it from cyclists from all the time at the Tour de France. It can sometimes take hours to produce a, a sample. Now, what happened here? Because it was urine only in 92, of course. No bloods at, at that stage. Did How long did it take you to produce a sample for the testers? Yeah, so the men's singles race... So what normally happens at most venues on finals days is there's a bunch of officials that do the finals for kayaking in the morning and then they'll go off and do other events in the afternoon. Yep. So 
the elite level of official is, you know, administering all the sports. And we had a naturally a program that was morning. So it started at nine and finished at 11.30. So I was the first race up. The men's thousand final was the first one on the program. So after that, <clears throat> we go into a tent, get our tracksuits on, do our presentation. That takes about half an hour, 40 minutes. And then they take you around the other side of the course to the big media centre, which is a ginormous tent with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of media there waiting for you to sit up on a platform and answer all these questions. Um, and so I um, finished the race, did my presentation, went around to the media centre, did like a, an hour and a half of interviews. Um, and then naturally the Australian um, barrister was at the uh, racing venue when a, when an athlete from your country wins there's usually a re legal representative there to make sure everything's done appropriately for the drug test so I, I met him and we sat in the drug we went to the drug testing room which is right beside the course where you can watch the races so I was watching the last few races that uh, took place for the morning and it got to 11 30 and uh, the barrister looked at me and said hey listen champ I need to go off to uh, support some other Aussies in other events in case they medal so you're going to have to get this show done and I just said oh, okay no worries so when I went into the actual drug testing area they have different fluids available for you to drink and with beer and um, water and usually a soft drink or something but the only things that were left because we were the last day of competition was beer and fanta so i i didn't drink it i'd never drunk alcohol at that stage in my life still so i um never ne to start ne looking. never no 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 and i still i still don't to this day i tried it a bit a few times but i just really don't enjoy it mate Fair so, so you, but you hooked I, into I didn't it grow up in a drinking household either like my parents never drank at home very often in yeah. my life either so I'd never got exposed to it a lot, you know? And uh, anyway, so I'm sitting there and it got to like 25 past 12 and I had about 18 of these three quarter, it was a, it was a quirky size they designed for the Olympics and it was, they were three quarter size and I had 18 of these cans on the ground. Beer? Um, next to me because, no, 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 just the Fanta. Right, okay. 18 Fantas. If, I, if, if it had been beer, I would have been on the ground rolling, <laughs> licking, licking stones. That's all I was thinking. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, um, the lady that was the drug testing um, chaperone for the entire event was a Spanish lady, naturally being in Barcelona. And she came out and she said, excuse me, sir, we have to get this done because uh, we have to go to another sport. And I said, I understand that. And she said, we have one little problem. I need to talk with your barrister privately. I said, oh, okay. So he went in there, had a chat, come out. And he said, mate, the only person left here who can watch you provide the sample. Now, naturally, the cubicles were tiny yeah and a person had to stand right in front of you against the wall to watch you pass the sample so no dodgy stuff took place and she said was is this young lady here and it was this gorgeous young spanish girl that was probably about 20 21 year old and she was the only one that could stand like literally half a meter away from me watch me pee so anyway we we went, went in the toilet and i got stage fright naturally with her standing there looking at me <laughs> but then all of a sudden you know after a while i thought holy geez i really do have to pee so the problem was when I started to pass the sample, you don't have to provide that much, but you know, which it was like when you're busting, you know, it's literally oh, hard no. to stop halfway through and go oh. game over. Oh no. So I had to stand there for like 30 seconds peeing into this bloody container and then into the toilet to finish it off. And she, when we walked out, the barrister said, you know, that girl is really olive in color naturally from all her genetics and stuff that they have in their bloodlines over there. And he said, but she was definitely redder than what you were when you walked out. So <laughs> that's sort of how the whole drug testing went down. It's an incredibly embarrassing day after something that was really, really good, you know. <laughs> See, amazing, isn't it? So so clearly pressure to provide that urine sample. But but did gold invite another, another level of pressure? I mean, how did it change your life in the short to medium term? Whether it be the pressure you put on yourself 
as well as the pressure you felt from outside in the years after the Barca Olympic? Yeah, well, this was the interesting thing back in the 80s, you know, probably or probably from maybe a little bit in the back of the 50s, the 60s, you hear about it a bit, but the 70s and 80s, Olympic athletes were like pretty much well, very, very well known. You know, if you're an Olympic champion, you were very well known. Sports these days with social media and everything alive and all that's aired everywhere, you know, everyone's a superstar these days because they're being watched all the time. But back in the, back in those days, free-to-air TV, you know, you didn't see a lot of sport. It was only the thing that you followed. And if you were lucky, that sport had enough profile to have money to put it on TV. Mm. But the Olympics was always on telly. So if you're an Olympic champion, it used to be said back in those days, in the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s, if you're a world champion, people will probably remember you for about six months to a year. If you're an Aussie champion, some people, you know, will remember that for maybe up to a third of a year. But if if you're an Olympic champion, people will refer to you as that for the rest of your life. And it is very, very true. I, I Even still now, if I go to any event, I'm referred to as the Olympic champion, you know? So it is a very significant accolade. And being an individual, um, you naturally have to do all that work yourself with your PR people and all your sponsors and so forth. So it changed my life a lot. But what it did do is every single thing I competed in, I, I was expected to win. Like, absolutely expected to win yeah i went to a carnival one day that was the biggest sponsored carnival in surf life saving in queensland and i did like eight or nine different events and i think i ended up with seven second places it was really weird i could not win anything but um, i was in the in the water doing tons of rounds and all this sort of stuff and then eventually ended up with seven seconds and i went up to the surf club to thank the sponsors and get interviewed at the end of it and one of the guys out of the crowd was a quite a high-end corporate and uh, he was a fairly good sponsor for queensland lifesaving and he said hey quint can i ask you a question and i said yeah and this was the first question that got thrown at me he said what happened today why didn't you win anything and i thought to myself wow it is true what i was told people love a winner and all they want to know is why you don't win once you've won that level mm. you know so it was a real wake-up call for me yeah yeah, it's, it's interesting. We, we often talk about the positives that ensue from something like that, but of course there's another side, isn't there? Hey, we're talking to Clint Robinson yeah. on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be right back with Clint after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Well, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Kayaker Clint Robinson's been our guest today. So, Clint, you got your first World Championship gold in the K1 in 94 in Mexico City. There was a bronze in Atlanta, 96, a silver in Athens, 04 in the K2. You're at Sydney. You're at Beijing. I mean... How full is, I imagine your cup's overflowing when it comes to your Olympics and World Championships career, which you also claim the full set of medals in. So did you squeeze the lemon dry? I mean, no regrets, I'd imagine. Oh, look, mate, uh, anyone that lives a life full of regrets hasn't lived a life that's followed their heart. You know, they've just been too pushed around by their head. Um, I've never lived where I've been dictated by thoughts or expectations of other people. You know, I learned that from a young age that that was a waste of time. And I had good people around me that taught me that that was a waste of time. And I, I've always done things that I've loved to do. So there's never a regret. If I had my time, would I do some things slightly differently? I think every person in their life, if they're completely honest, could say yes to that. I definitely would have changed some things the way I went about it. But, oh, mate, no regrets. 100% no regrets. I, I lived 
my dreams yeah and i chased them some i got some i didn't but yeah i wouldn't change it for the world and the uncle toby super series or the nutrigrain super series as it was known prior to that i mean how did it end? And, and even to the current day, do you, do, you, do you pine for its return? I mean, is it a shame that it's no longer around to the, to the levels that it was back in the, as we said earlier, the 80s and, and 90s? Yeah, you know, like everything comes and has its heyday, doesn't it? You know, I mean, and, and for things to survive in the current climate, it's big bucks. Everything these days is social media based or live or it's filmed and, the ease of technology that's allowed all that to happen has just changed everything. It, it's, it's not, it doesn't have that full holistic nature like it did in the 80s and 90s. And most people will always say that about their era. But quite honestly, if you grew up like we did in that era and you got to see it for what it was and how holistically real and tough it was to be good at that stuff, you see what goes on today and the athletes are still as good. There's no, there's no difference in that. But it's just the ease and the money and the opportunity is just so great these days. Like, you know, kids have so many sports where mm. there's so much money, so much coaching, so many international travel opportunities. I mean, look where schools take kids now. I mean, it's just the, the world is so open. COVID certainly slowed all that down, of course, but the opportunities for young people these days has completely changed their outlook on what we saw when we were young. But do I think it's a shame that some of those Uncle Toby's Ironman series days um, aren't what they are today? Yeah, I really do. Because surf lifesaving definitely doesn't have anywhere near the profile that it did back then. Nowhere near it. So, and I, I don't believe the depth of competition in any of this Nutrigrain stuff that's running around these days is anywhere near what it used to be in that Uncle Toby's era. That was just incredibly difficult. And they were very, very good athletes, a lot of them. So, but they were full time too, mate. It's like... Mm. You know, playing the guys that played AFL in the 40s, playing against the guys that are playing AFL in the early 2000s. Like these guys these days are full-time, well-trained, recovered athletes. And the guys back in the 40s went to work and then just kicked the footy around on the weekends. Um, so the Uncle Toby's days were full-time, professional-driven athletes that were earning very good money. You know, the stuff that's around these days compared to then, it's chicken feed. It yeah. really is. Yeah. So we've got you now not long out of the water. I mean, you're still coaching at the moment. How much satisfaction or joy do you get out of out of doing that? That's what mainly keeps you busy nowadays. Yeah, well, as I said just before, like with my career, I, I do things that I love to do. My motivation in life is not about being as wealthy as I can possibly be from a material sense. It's about enjoying as much physically and things that I like to see and what I enjoy doing being healthy. That to me is ultimate wealth. And I work with a lot of people that are very wealthy people. And they sometimes look at me and go, you're such a lucky bugger. And I go, what do you mean by that? They go, well, sometimes you dig yourself into things that earn you so much money, but you just can't get out of it. And a lot of it's not that great a time where you, you lucky bugger, they're like, you're out there on the water in a perfect environment, in a great area in the country where you can run camps, do clinics, help young kids, do races in Hawaii and Tahiti every year yourself. They're like, you truly have lived the dream, you bugger. And I'm like, well, that's what I always said I wanted to do and I'm not going to change it as long as I can do it, you know? So, yes, I do coach a lot of people. I'm a full-time coach of paddle sport and also surf life-saving younger athletes. And um, I get a heck of a lot out of helping people do things that I'd love to do and do it at a high level. I, I really enjoy that. 
Clint, I've got to thank you so much for joining us today. I could talk to you for hours. I mean, you're a great Aussie champion, that goes without saying, but you also embodied everything we love in our athletes, driven, hungry, and that real mental strength that I find so fascinating. And I suppose when the will to win is matched by the talent you possess, you get the sort of resume, don't you, that has become the stuff of legend. So well done on everything you achieved, and, and thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, thanks for your time, mate. It's my pleasure. All the best. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey. It's for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can catch them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals. All thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.